If I start the day touching my smartphone, I know that's probably not going to be a great writing day. I come to my most interesting insights and I'm able to do the best work and the most kind of connective work when I have long, uninterrupted periods of time. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. Today, my guest is Craig Maud, a writer, designer, and technologist whose work I've long admired. He creates gorgeously designed limited edition books and also has a degree in computer science and loves geeking out about the future of technology. And it's these twin obsessions, a deep appreciation of the slowness of handcrafted analog objects, coupled with a vast curiosity about where the lightning-fast progression of technology is taking us, that gives him such a unique perspective. I came to Craig's work through his writing, and in particular, his meditations on how advances in technology are changing the quality of our attention. As any of you listening who are already familiar with my work know, I am obsessed with distraction and how the apps and tools that we use on a daily basis are slowly eroding away our ability to concentrate our attention on much of anything for extended periods of time, which has a substantive impact on our ability to tap into the deep focus required in order to create truly great work. So it's no surprise that Craig's writing resonates with me. In this conversation, we talk about how smartphones and social media are lulling us into quote-unquote attention slavery, and how we can start to break out of this toxic cycle of addiction and regain control over our powers of concentration. For Craig, the answer lies in regularly going off the grid, with smaller, no-internet sprints during ordinary workdays, punctuated with deeper offline sessions during writing and meditation retreats. We chatted by phone, 13 time zones apart, with me in New York and Craig in his home outside of Tokyo. I should warn you that after listening to this episode, it's highly likely that you will want to go on a silent meditation retreat. Now let's dive in. So you went off the grid for about 28 days during a writing residency this past winter. How did that impact your writing kind of during the process? Well, I've done it um, a number of times, and mm-hmm. it's al- it's always positive. It's always um, it's just about focus. I mean, the thing that I find I have a problem with is that as soon as I touch an internet connection, and this could be just looking at a smartphone if it's on the table in front of me, I just feel my mind like it's a bowl of guppies that want me to drop dopamine. From above into their mouths, you know, just like give me those little hits. And because I've recognized that this is how my mind responds to the Internet and to all the all the different, you know, fun facets and places that you kind of have an identity online. So, you know, it could be looking at log files for my website and seeing, you know, has anyone you know, any new visitors, any new referrers come up recently that are interesting to, you know, spending time on Twitter and, you know, that sort of spiral of just, you know, I'm just going to take a peek at Twitter. And then next thing you know, it's 40 minutes, an hour later. Um, and you've, you're in all these weird sub conversations with a bunch of different people. Uh, even just in messaging, like I just have so many friends that I'm curious about and want to be in touch with 
that even if I just pop into Facebook Messenger, I'm going to send 10 messages, you know, to different writers and artists and, you know, what are you working on? What's going on? You know, letting them know what I'm working on. So I just know that if I touch the internet, my focus is gone. And so the way I subvert that is just pretending the internet doesn't exist. And so not having it even on, I can't even have it on in the background in like a full screen writing program because it's just too easy to slip into it, to just, you know, tab over to a browser and start researching something or, you know, looking at mail or getting pulled into one of those different universes. And so um, for me and for my writing and for really any kind of deep creative activity, this could be programming as well. I know that I come to my most interesting insights and I'm able to do the best work and the most kind of connective work when I have long, uninterrupted periods of time. And it doesn't mean that I'm working on the thing the whole time, but it means I work on the thing, I take a step back, I don't go run around online, I let my subconscious continue to work on that thing as I take a little walk without looking at my phone. Or I love blackboards, so I have a giant blackboard in my studio. If I'm stuck in the middle of an essay or a book, I take a step back and I just stand in front of the blackboard and I look at the macro structure of the thing I'm working on. I don't go and grasp at the low hanging fruit of searching for something online or communicating with someone online. And so usually what I do is I try to set it up. So I, when I go to bed, all the internet goes off and then the next day at 5 PM, I'm allowed to turn it on. If, if I know that I have to be communicating with people during that period, if I don't have work obligations, then I just don't turn it on for the entire stretch, 10 days or 28 days or whatever. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking the other day I was um, going for a walk in the park and I left my phone at home and I was sort of tracking all of the times that I thought about, you know, using my phone to do something or share a thought or communicate a thought. And I was sort of thinking about it as, you know, like this metaphor of kind of this slow sort Mm -hmm. of drip, right? But when you're connected to the phone or you're connected to an internet, you know, those those thoughts and those reflections sort of drip outward, right? And you kind of let the, you know, you share them with people and you sort of transmit them outward. Whereas if you're not online, you know, it's sort of like that drip is more internal and it's like thoughts are able to actually pool and coalesce and sort of transform into something in a way that you know, you really lose when you're kind of focusing it in a more external way. Yeah. And you're also over rewarded, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. you have a, you have a pithy little thought and you put it on Twitter and you get some likes and you get a response when really like there was probably something more interesting beneath that pithy thought, but because the way the thing, everything is structured, going on Twitter, popping that in there feels, it's like duplicitous in a way where it feels like you're being productive when obviously you're not. Do you think that there's a a substantive uh, qualitative difference in your writing when you're on a retreat versus, you know, when you're in a sort of more regular day and perhaps accessing the internet more frequently? Yeah. I mean, I can't work on big projects if I'm in a so-called, you know, connective space. Like if I start the day with my touching my smartphone, I know that's probably not going to be a great writing day. And so what is your kind of more regular daily routine now? Well, I still like, uh, you know, I'm lucky in the sense that I don't commute to uh, an office. Um, You know, my uh, 
I've tried to optimize my life in such a way where fixed costs are quite low. So I'm able to, on my own, take a month and just focus on one, for example, piece of writing or, um, you know, editing, you know, looking into podcast spaces and trying to, you know, develop the skills for that. And, uh, and so on days like this, which have become my normal days, um, I keep the internet off for as long as possible. And so I usually won't touch it until after lunch that, that, you know, when it's like, when I'm not in a deep retreat mode where I want to keep it off completely for the entire period for these kinds of days, it's, it's when I go to bed, it goes off, it goes into my phone, goes into airplane mode, my computer, I close all my browser tabs, I close my email and I turn the Wi-Fi off. And then that stuff doesn't go back on until, until after lunch, until I feel like I've really, you know, had a, had a substantive morning of, of work. And I feel like I've worked through things and, and you feel it. That's the thing is like, you realize like you get to these points, uh, you know, there'll be, there'll be moments in the morning where I'm working on a piece of writing and I'll go, Oh my God, I couldn't have done this if the internet was on. Like it's, it's that black and white for me where I can, Mm -hmm. I feel my mind allowing me to do a kind of work that I want to do. That's otherwise impossible. If there's a network connection next to me. When I was just reading, there was a study that was done that literally, you know, found that if your smartphone is just yeah. in the room, even if it's turned off on airplane mode, is still, you know, draining away your cognitive energy. And, totally. you know, even when you think that you are focused. <laughs> totally. That's why it feels, it's almost like an act of violence when you're out, uh, you know, for dinner with someone and they put their cell phone on the table. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, whoa, you know, there's, I mean, there's so much to that simple little act. I try to be so careful about that now, you know, and uh, even if it's upside down, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just going to have it here, but it's going to be upside down. Even that feels like I'm here, but I'm not here. And this is why the Apple Watch to me just feels like the worst, <laughs> the most horrible <laughs> piece of technology. Like I, there isn't a piece of te- technology I want less than the Apple Watch. So kind of going back to the Blackboard idea, do you find that the quality of your attention is different when you're working on a computer or reading on a screen versus when you're, you know, working or writing by hand or reading on paper or, you know, say writing on something physical like a blackboard, just in terms of the quality of your thinking and your attention? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't do a lot of the work I'm, I do. I couldn't work on the projects I'm working on if I didn't have a blackboard. I just couldn't do it. That was kind of one of the insights I had at the last writing residency. I mean, I I always knew that having, you know, a whiteboard or a wall, you know, it's obviously really helpful. But at the residency in Virginia in November, I made so much progress. And so much of it was because of the wall I had that was just covered in the book. And I could stand there and I developed this new, almost like, you know, Google Maps zooming capability with the work that I had never been able to do before. And i when I got back from the residency, I just realized that I need this every day of my life. And, um, even with other people, you know, like I, I had a friend over the other day and I said, let's, you know, let's map some of the goals in our lives. Like, you know, it's kind of interesting to talk about this stuff with friends and people you respect and people who've done interesting things. And, you know, I started writing stuff and they were sitting down I said, no, no, here, like, here's a piece of chalk, stand up here. And like, let's just kind of go crazy, you know, write out all the different things that we're optimizing for. And by the end, um, you know, this, there's something about the spatial relationship of of ideas as placed in front of you versus say in a text file, 
where you start to feel almost like emotional hotspots on the board itself. And that pulls out different ideas. And that brings you into deeper places and, and, and pulls you into different directions. And maybe if a computer screen was able to be two meters by one meter and have zero latency and be, you know, retina quality and, you know, be affordable, you could get it for $300. If a computer screen achieves that, then maybe that kind of tactility and physicality would work even with a screen. But we're so far away from that being real um, that for now, a blackboard, a good wall is absolutely insurmountable for me, at least I find, I find it's invaluable. You know, you're talking about sort of this almost Google maps like idea of, of being able to zoom in. And I actually use that metaphor for myself quite frequently, this idea of kind of zooming in and zooming out, because I feel like at this particular moment in time, and it's maybe something, you know, about the smartphone or about the sort of small size of these laptop screens that we work on, but it feels like we're sort of zoomed in all the time, mm. you know, and something about writing larger, or writing on a blackboard, you know, as you kind of say, enables you to sort of zoom out or shift between a sort of zoomed out and zoomed in state in a way that is, I don't know, much more constructive for thinking than this, this sort of hyper-focused modality that we kind of tend to get into. Yeah. I mean, it gives you permission. It gives you permission to kind of get messy. You know, a smartphone screen is so tiny that you feel like you can't make a mess. At least I feel that way. You know, there's the, the thing about having a big blackboard in front of you where it's blank is that it's not daunting. It's exciting. I don't know. I feel excited. I, you know, and, and you go, oh, man, I can I can make such a mess here. And it doesn't matter if I have to get rid of it. It's easy to erase. It's easy to move stuff around. You know, and I use a combination of these like tiny magnets and note cards. So, you know, I'm writing things on note cards and using tiny magnets because most blackboards are magnetic. Uh, you can just stick them on this on the blackboard. And um, uh, that space gives you the permission to go into weird places with ideas, you know, in a way that even a tablet, you know, I, I, I was borrowing a iPad pro from Apple and it's a, you know, it's an impressive machine, but it's got nothing on a blackboard in terms of, in terms of brainstorming, <laughs> nothing. We're going to pause for a quick break now to thank our sponsors but stay tuned because after the jump, Craig and I get into a deep discussion of how meditation can help you, as he says, defrag your mind so that you can deploy your attention more consciously and more powerfully. This episode is brought to you in part by Hover. To learn a little bit more about their services, I recently spoke with longtime customer Eugene Saknyanko from Worker Bee Supply Company. Are you the type of person who checks to see if a domain name is available as soon as you have a new idea? It's like 100% within the first 15 minutes of thinking of something. So when you're ready to pull the trigger or you're just kind of browsing for domain names, why do you use Hover? What makes them different? So I've been buying domain names for various projects for over a decade. And when I discovered Hover, it was such a breath of fresh air. Everything from when you're first buying the domain name is super streamlined and simple. You just go in, they don't try to upsell you on a million useless things that you don't need, all the way to the back end when you're actually setting up a website or need to redirect the domain name. 
It's very clear. They have a lot of great support and guides. So you can go in and within a couple of minutes have everything that you need then. Saves a lot of time. Well, you heard the man. It's quick, it's simple, and it's easy. Head over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first domain purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by SaneBox. People who know me well know that I am passionate about email. Or rather, I am passionate about how much I despise email as a workplace distraction, one that eats up great gobs of our attention, which could be better spent on more meaningful work. So the question is, what would you do if you got that time and attention back? What would you do with two more hours each week? What about four more hours? That's how much time SaneBox saves their average user every single week. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and makes keeping it that way forever super easy. It also has some sweet features like one-click unsubscribe, which sends annoying emails into the aptly named black hole, and automatic tracking of messages that haven't received replies yet, so you can see what needs following up. See how SaneBox can help you reclaim your time and attention with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash hurry slowly today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash hurry slowly. Shifting gears a little bit, um, you recently did, I believe, two 10-day Vipassana meditation retreats. Um, Just can one. you tell me? You did? Okay. Because your, your newsletter, it sounded like you were about to go on a second I, one. I, I was willing to, but, <laughs> okay. you know, I'd reached the state in the first one where if this, if someone said, Hey, you want to do another one tomorrow? I could have done it, but schedule, it didn't work out, but, um, got it. Yeah. Well, just so one. tell me, tell, tell me about what your just one <laughs> 10 day Vipassana meditation retreat was like. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. I knew it was going to be tough, but it was, I don't know, I would say 10 times harder than I expected it to be. Um, because I didn't expect such an intense media withdrawal. So the first three days were difficult, not because sitting still is difficult, but because I think, you know, we've all built up, like you were saying, when you're taking a walk, thinking about how many times you feel pulled to the phone. And we've kind of built up these mental path habits of remembering, oh, I should make that note. Oh, I should add to that to-do list. Oh, I should check that email. Oh, I need to respond to that person. Oh, I should add this thing to my calendar. Oh, I should check Twitter to make sure this thing came out. Oh, I need to set a reminder to watch that show. Oh, I should order a car for, you know, that trip next week. Oh, I need to get something from Amazon. Oh, that's right. I forgot I need a new, you know, uh, case of water or something. You know, it's like you, because the phone is so good at enabling things, it removes so much friction to enabling things, I think we are all constantly turning back to it. And so when you get to the Vipassana retreat, you have to give them your phone, you give them your laptop, you give them your your camera, you give them any books you have. You're not allowed to have books, you're not allowed to, to have paper, to have a pen, uh, certainly not a phone. And you're forced to just be present and there's absolutely nothing to do. And you're forced to confront, you know, these these habits that you've built up. I mean, thankfully, you know, it's not like heroin. And it, it, it basically took about three days before I came to this realization that the stress and the tension I was feeling was from those things. I thought it was just, oh, God, this is really tough. But 
I realized I had this insight. I was, you know, we were taking a break and I was walking around this little field and I had this insight of, oh my God, you know, I keep getting pulled outside of this place because I'm constantly getting pulled outside of myself wherever I am. And uh, in that moment, I decided, well, I said, Craig, you can, you can live in this stressful state for seven more days. It's going to be tough. It was like inverse summer camp where summer camp, you never wanted to end this. I, I kept thinking, oh my God, seven more days. <laughs> When's it going to be done? And so I said, you can live in that painful mindset or, you know, we can, we can really embrace this as a gift to shed that habit and be hyper mindful, just hyper, hyper, hyper mindful and hyper present. And so anytime I'd feel a pull out of the present to, to go, oh God, I should set that reminder. I should check that email. I should do, I would just force myself to look at exactly what was in front of me. And it became this incredible experience. Like, thank God I, you know, I think a lot of people come to that conclusion much earlier probably on the first day, but thank God I at least got it, got to it on the third day because from that point on, everything changed and everything I did from brushing my teeth, you know, every single stroke of the toothbrush to putting the cap back on the toothpaste to picking up a plate in the dining hall and making as little noise as possible to, you know, opening the rice cooker, you know, with, without making a single bit of friction or, or causing a, you know, the latch to make a noise and returning it when I was done. Basically, I turned everything into tea ceremony. I realized on like day five or day six, I was like, oh my God, this is, if you, if you watch a great tea ceremony practitioner, every movement is so beautifully calculated. And because the domain of things you could do at the Vipassana retreat was so, um, it was just, it was so restricted that every day there were about maybe a hundred actions that you were going through every day. And it became such that you could literally master every action of the day you could find the most uh, sort of um dialed in version of that action and so you know eating every bite of food and acknowledging every kernel of rice and like you know when cleaning the plate perfectly when you were done and even taking just a walk around there's a little walking area i would wrap my head in a towel so i could only see right in front of my feet and just every step kind of having an awareness of that step and it was, it was really wonderful. You know, it was the meditation part the sitting was incredible. And then on top of that, this developing almost like, it almost felt like a, like a root in the ground in a way that I haven't had in, in decades, probably, you know, it was like when you, when you say, I'm not going to allow my mind to fly off, it, you suddenly feel like your feet are firmer in the ground. Like it was this weird sort of physiological response. I just felt hyper present in, in physiologically and mentally. And so by the end of the retreat, you know, I had built up this new habit and it's been about five weeks since the retreat. And I find I deploy it everywhere throughout the day, constantly. And you, you kind of go, how was I not you, you realize how much stress you had been holding on to because of that flitting mind, the, the mind jumping somewhere else all the time. Even just waiting in line to, you know, at the supermarket to buy some eggs, just being able to stand there and be present 
this whole weird universe of, of kind of stress dissipates. You know, it's very ephemeral. It's very seductive. It's, 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 you know, and it builds up. It's almost like a lactic acid buildup or something. Like it just builds up in this way you don't notice until you do something extreme, like 10, take 10 days and disconnect from everything. And not only disconnect from the network, but disconnect from all media, printed media, televised media, everything. When you use this metaphor in the essay that you wrote afterwards in your newsletter um, of meditating being a way to sort of defrag the mess of your mind, which I thought was really beautiful. So how does that play out? I mean, you said you sort of developed some new habits when, you know, you come back out into this, um, you know, world, right, that is not filled with restrictions, that's, you know, large and messy and, you know, there are things coming at you every moment. How did that kind of change your experience afterwards? Well, first of all, you just recognize how overwhelming everything is. (laughs) And you kind of, and you feel even more the danger of things like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, or even just having an email client on your phone. Um, Because you've developed the sensitivity to things pulling you away from yourself. You know, I, I don't, the internet isn't inherently evil. The internet isn't out to get you. You know, these technologies, these base technologies aren't inherently bad, but I do think there are a lot of bad incentives that are driving the creation of a lot of software out there. Um, misaligned incentives, incentives that are about capturing as much attention as possible. And because so much money is caught up in building those products that the companies kind of don't have a moral leg to stand on and say, Oh, actually we're going to try to, we're going to try to minimize the amount of attention we take and make it only be really high quality attention because that doesn't allow you to reach the valuation you need to reach when you've taken $500 million in funding. And so I think a lot of these products that are built on top of the internet, if we go to the defrag, go back to the defrag metaphor, a lot of these products are built to further fragment your mind versus calm you or get you to the information you're trying to get to as quickly as possible and get you out. And one of the things I thought about in the retreat when I was walking, I was doing, you know, when we had a break and I do a little walk, I had this image of in a hundred years, people looking back or a thousand years, people looking back today on structures like Facebook in the same way that we look back on the pyramids. And we look at the pyramids and we go, oh my God, those are incredible things. They're, they're, they're so beyond human scale. And we know that they were built on the backs of slave labor, essentially. And I, I had this moment where I, I, I realized, you know, in a thousand years, I could imagine these kind of historians or these robot historians or whatever, looking back on now and going, look at Facebook, look at this thing. This is unbelievable like the corpus of information that has been created here for what end you know what were these people doing you know and just kind of this 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 image of instead of slaves hauling giant slabs of stone it's this insidious sense of everyone constantly going back picking up adding to the corpus adding to the corpus in a way that yeah it doesn't feel like slave labor, but if you're spending hours a day building this stuff up, getting dubious value out of it, 
and creating tons of value for, you know, the pharaohs or the shareholders, then it starts to feel like there's a weird confluence between those two things. All right. I like the Facebook is slave labor metaphor <laughs> that you're working with here. It's, it's, <laughs> that's, that's, that sounds like some 10-day meditation retreat, like depth analysis well, it, it of was, it. It <laughs> was, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's not slave labor, but it's this... It's it this, might be. <laughs> how do you... Well, you know, I think I think if you treat attention as a commodity, then it is kind of slavery. It's attention slavery, you know, and, you know, maybe there's a more politically correct way of phrasing that, but, you know, the, the fact that we have gotten, you know, what is it? 3 billion people are on Facebook now, 2 billion MAUs adding to this thing where they're not getting paid, you know, like for the most part, it kind of doesn't help your career. So it's like, you're not, you're not making money. You know, it'd be one thing if everyone was just living on LinkedIn and like getting all these awesome jobs um, and adding to that. But it's it's this weird thing we're feeding. And I don't know, it just, you know, I, Facebook can be great used in moderation. It can be incredible, you know, during disasters and things like that. I don't think Facebook is inherently bad, but we do a really bad job at modulating our relationship with it. Well, so in that, um, in the piece you wrote for Back Channel, I Want My Attention Back, you said, I tried to think back to when my attention was something I could manipulate confidently. And your use of the word manipulate really struck me. Do you think that there was ever a time when we could manipulate our attention confidently or that we just used to live in a moment where we really weren't called upon to manipulate our attention because there just weren't as many demands, right? But sort of technology has kind of changed all of that now. Well, I think meditation is all about that, right? I mean, meditation is all about having control over your, your conscious mind, over your attention. And so I think people for thousands of years have recognized that this is why meditation is this thing that, you know, it's, it's totally unintuitive, you know, especially like Vipassana meditation is this very weird thing. And, but when you go into it, the physiological sort of response that your body has and, and these sensations you start to pick up are things that you would never accidentally happen upon. And so it, you have to have this kind of strong intention to go into that space. So I think we've always recognized that control over the conscious mind is important and difficult and requires discipline. And, um, I don't know. I think it's tough to say, oh, were people in the 1800s more present in the moment than people now? Uh, you know, I think in, to a degree, yeah. I think, you know, I think the smartphone is this is something that changed our relationship with the moment, with living in the present space physically and, and psychically. And um, one of the things that you learn on like day one of the meditation course for the Vipassana stuff with Goenka, uh, who's the teacher who, who founded it, is that, you know, the mind is constantly either going back in time or going forward in time. Like these are the kind of defaults. And I would say that, you know, we, we have this natural desire to go back to the moments that we, we loved, these moments that we want to get back to again. And we have this natural desire to think into the future and go, oh, I want to, I want this to happen, or I want, you know, this fantasy to come true. And I think what the smartphone does 
is it just amplifies the ability to do that in a way that's tangible in a way that we couldn't do on our own before. So for example, Google photos is like a great example, right? You know, it's giving us pings of, Hey, this day, two years ago, do you remember this moment? Do you remember this day? Do you remember this time? And Facebook has, I think, recognized that we're all so sick of posting about our lives in the present that every time I open Facebook now, it just shows me something I did four years ago and says, do you want to, do you want to talk about this again? You know, it's all of these products do everything they can to keep you from being present and to keep you in their world in a way that I think plays into our natural tendency of doing that. And so I do think that we are less likely to, for example, if there was a, a meter of one to 10 of how present you, you were, or how much you, you could manipulate your own attention, how, how confident you were that you could say, read a book for three hours without an interruption, without feeling pulled to something else. You know, I would say if, if the baseline pre-smartphone was like a four or three you know now it's a now it's a one you know now we 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 really lost control of that ability to manipulate where our attention is and and what it's moving towards and how did you find that that specifically in sort of a work we'll say creative you know writing context how did you find that that shifted for you sort of you know post doing this meditation retreat oh my god i just feel like my entire body is sinking into the, the place where I am, where I'm doing the work in this, in this, again, like the sense of rootedness, it's really weird. The, the physiological sensation of being present. Um, so I find, you know, even today I'm, I'm working on an essay and I have it printed out in front of me and I'll have this moment where I realize, wow, I'm really in this thing. And in a way that I probably wouldn't have been two months ago before the retreat. And um, with film, actually, I found I had this this incredible shift in relationship to watching movies. Um, I just watched the Three Colors films by, I forget, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, whose movies I had not seen. And I watched Red And in the middle of it, I just felt, oh my God, this relationship I'm having right now with this work of art is directly connected to the meditation. And it became intoxicating. I mean, it was really exciting. And I, you know, I finished it and I just started it again. I was like, I just want to go back in there. I want to spend more time in this space. I ended up watching the film like five times over the course of two days. My relationship to everything feels like it's changed after the, after Mm. the retreat in a way that just makes me feel like I was hungry for something like that. You know, for a long time, mm-hmm. I've been trying to control my attention better, you know, doing, using these extern, externalities like the, the, the writing fellowships or the retreats or, um, uh, you know, going into the mountains, which kind of has an implicit disconnective quality to it. Um, but the 10 the day intensive where I did a hundred hours of meditating. Like it's when's the last time you've done a hundred hours of anything focused for 10 days, you know, never in my life have I ever done anything like that. Even studying for finals, you know, at university, it would never be 10 days of one subject, you know, you know, just nonstop. It'd be, you know, three or four days with this one or that one. And you take breaks, you walk around, but that total commitment of attention and coming out of it, 
man, I just find it manifests in everything. Conversations with friends have changed. The presence, the being present in for that conversation, you know, with film, with other books, with essays, with my own work, I've become the crazy person who runs around, you know, imploring, begging all of my friends to go do this thing now because I'm like, I, it's going to make you better at all this stuff you're trying to do. I had I had coffee with an entrepreneur who's a young, really you know, well-meaning entrepreneur the other day, and he's he's you know said, oh, I'm so scatterbrained. I said, you right now have the time to go do this. Go sign up tomorrow. Go do it. Like, stop trying to figure out what you're going to build and go do this thing and then see what your mind pulls you towards when you're out of it, when you've defragged it, when you've cleaned everything up. And that was also why at the end of it, I felt like, you know, God, I've just started to touch this. And you, when you start to feel the clarity of mind that comes from, a retreat like that, it becomes totally addictive and you want to go deeper into it and you go, what does 30 days feel like? If this is just 10 days, like I'm a, I'm a dilettante, I'm a nothing in this universe of meditation. And I feel like I'm getting this much benefit out of it. What does 30 days feel like? What is, you know, a 60 day retreat feel like? And it feels like those are important things to go and explore. And they feel doubly important because of the way I find for me, Personally, technology has affected my ability to control that consciousness and the attention. Well, you've convinced me. <laughs> I'm, I will uh, report back when I have found the time to do this. Yeah. And I'm definitely you know, somewhat terrified of it. I've been thinking lately a lot about that's the religious concept of being in the world, but not of it. Mm. Not so much in a spiritual sense, but you know, in the sense of engaging with technology or not, or hmm. managing your attention or not. Um, do you think it's possible to be in the world, but not of it anymore? If, I mean, if it ever was without say, you know, sort of being a complete recluse. I think it's impossible to do it if you're part of a company. So I think it, or, or most companies, if you're, if you're so-called as they'd say in Japan, a salary man or salary woman or office person. Um, I think that the dependency on the depth of dependency that companies have on technology means that you are forced to be kind of plugged into the matrix all the time in a way that's tough to, to, to pull away. For me, what's interesting is not going into the mountains being a hermit forever. That to me is totally uninteresting because I am totally excited by technology. I, I am, I've you know been a technologist my whole life. When I was a kid, I remember one of the, the greatest sadnesses I felt was realizing that I was going to die in like 70 years and I wouldn't be able to see all the cool stuff that we were absolutely, absolutely going to invent, you know, by the year 2100. <laughs> I remember thinking, I'm not going to live to 2100 and having this like almost this like midlife crisis when I was like five. And uh, <laughs> so technology is fascinating and I think important and it's inevitable. Uh, I agree with Kevin Kelly that, you know, these things... Um, are going to be built no matter what. And to me, the most exciting thing is to have control over my mind and still take part in the real world, so-called real world. And doing that retreat, for example, or baking a retreat into my schedule regularly, um, or doing the, the meditation retreat, that's critical to allowing me to come back and sort of be part of the world again. And because it makes you more sensitive to all of the 
the weird uh, cycles and circles and habits that you kind of slowly opt into unknowingly because it makes you more sensitive to all that stuff. It allows you to go, Oh my God, okay, these things exist. And let me try to synthesize this insight I've had and share that with people and start this conversation. And, you know, it's not, it's not about getting rid of all technology. It's not about getting rid of Twitter. It's not about getting rid of Facebook, but it's about saying, all right, if we're going to have these things, there's a responsibility I think that we have on ourselves to be more in control of our attention. You know, if we want to have what I think is, you know, is, is a, is a life of gratitude for being alive, you know, this sense of, you know, not to, not to define what makes a, a life worth living, but I think that a life in which you are never present, in which you have no control over your attention, in which you're constantly being pulled in different directions is sort of sad because there's, there is this incredible gift of consciousness and when that consciousness is deployed smartly, it's amazing the things that can be built out out of it. You know, one of the, one of the most amazing structures I've ever seen is the Large Hadrian Collider over at CERN. I did a little project mm-hmm. with them three years ago, and I got to go see it. I got to go into it. And you look at a, an object like that, and you just go, yeah, no, this object is the the result of so much concerted attention and dedication to getting this thing made. There were a hundred million moments where someone could have said, let's not do this. And when you see it finally finished and when you realize it, it's just a giant slingshot, it's kind of amazing, right? It's just this giant slingshot, like crash test dummy machine for particles. You go, God, that is like, that's, this feels like the most religious object I've ever seen. Because it's such a product of, of what we are capable of as humans when our attention is deployed in beautiful and curious ways. I couldn't help but notice Craig's use of the verb deploy as he talked about attention throughout our interview. It's an unusual word choice. Typically, the term deploy is used in a military context. And in many ways, we are going to battle for our attention these days. But deploy also means, according to Merriam-Webster, to spread out, utilize, or arrange for deliberate purpose. And that does capture, in the most accurate sense, the way in which we must be able to manage our attention if we want to create incredible work, or push through an amazing athletic feat, or even just be really present in a relationship or a conversation. We must be able to marshal our attention for a deliberate purpose. And that's a tall order these days with all of the things competing for our attention on a moment-to-moment basis. But what's the alternative? Frittering away our lives on Netflix or Twitter because we can't drag our attention away to focus on the things that really matter? I was serious when I told Craig I was convinced. And to put my money where my mouth is, I just signed up for my own 10-day Vipassana retreat this spring. And quite frankly, I'm terrified about what's going to happen when I'm stripped of all the outlets I normally have to occupy my mind and my attention. What happens when there's no problem to solve or lesson to be learned? When you sit for 10 days with absolutely nothing to accomplish? I'll report back. If you enjoyed this show, I would love it if you shared it with a friend or left us a review on our iTunes page. Most of us could do with a little reminder to slow down sometimes, and I need you to help spread the gospel. 
if you'd like to get a heads up when new episodes come out, as well as extras like mini meditations and Hurry Slowly interview supercuts, sign up for the newsletter at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now, it's time for our final moment of Zen. How would you describe mindfulness in 10 words or less? You know, the, the pith, you know, whatever, the, the funny version is mindfulness is not caring about Donald Trump's latest tweet. Like that's, that to me, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's the big realization you have. When you go, when you go and you're doing, you're doing this retreat, you realize how unimportant, how totally unimportant mm. all of that stuff is. And so mindfulness is an acknowledgement of the lack of import that so much of this garbage has. The show was produced with the concentrated attention of Matt Susich. Our theme music, Calm Revelation, was created by Devin Craig Johnson, who is also, you should know, an excellent DJ. I owe a special thanks to the wonderful publication Aeon Magazine for being the place where I was first introduced to Craig Maud's work. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to hurry slowly. <laughs>